this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we have a special Beatles-themed live episode recorded at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. While we were there, we checked out their exhibit called Get Back to Let It Be, which is built around footage from Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary from 2021, as well as some amazing artifacts, and that's very much worth seeing. We taped the episode on Ringo Starr's 83rd birthday, and Ringo himself briefly chimed in with some thoughts on Get Back and more. We'll start by letting you hear a little bit of my conversation with Ringo, and then we'll move on to the live episode, which features an interview with the legendary producer Glenn Johns, who recorded the original Let It Be sessions and also made a very different version of that album that you were finally able to hear officially on the Super Deluxe Edition that came out last year. He also talks about his groundbreaking work with Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Stones, and more. But first, here's Ringo Starr. This is what he had to say about his birthday tradition of people giving a peace and love salute around the world. In 2008, I was on tour. We were in New York, and then my birthday was like 10 days later. I was being interviewed. She said, Ringo, what would you like your fans to give you for your birthday? And I don't know where it came from. I thought, oh, you know what would be great? At noon, wherever you are, wherever they are, down a mine, on a bus, doesn't matter where, if at noon they could go peace and love. That's how it started. And then we got to Chicago, where my birthday was, and uh, Hard Rock was going to help us. They were going to make little cakes, and we were going to have a crowd outside. Anyway, we, had, we started with 80 people. And uh, I like to mention that all the little cakes we gave free were on eBay that night. <laughs> <laughs> 300 bucks <laughs> and uh, but still peace and love and so it's gone on from there so it, it goes around the world it's so great yeah i feel good i do the same thing i did when you last interviewed me that was i go to the gym i watch what i eat i move i just do those things it's not very difficult and i do it for the reason i want to be fit so I'm still doing the same thing, watching what I eat, and I don't eat mounds of it. When we go to a restaurant now, I say, give me a portion you'd give a seven-year-old. Because <laughs> in America, that is plenty big enough. I just do what I do, and thank the Lord that, hey, I'm feeling groovy. You never know when you're going to drop. That's the thing. And uh, I'm not dropping yet. <laughs> and here's Ringo looking back at the Get Back documentary as well as his experience making Let It Be. What happened was that Peter Jackson did the great job, and he would be in L.A., come and visit, and I would tell him when he was, said he'd do the job. Look, there was lots of joy and fun in it, where Michael Lindsay Hogg's version took one moment and kept it, like, down. 
we were four guys. You have a row, you have this, and George left and blah, blah, came back. Stuff happens. And I was so pleased to get all that in, but you're also laughing and laughing with each other and at each other. And, you know, Paul had started some song we'd never heard of, and he had three words or a verse. That's what we did. The thing about it was the start was very hard because usually we'd go to the studios and John would have two or three songs, Paul would have two or three songs. Then we had to wait to see which one was brave enough to do the first song because they all wanted us to be in the band working and then do their songs. <laughs> and they had nothing. No one came to the party with, oh, I've got this. And so that sort of was great to see. But I remember at the time it was so cold in that place. I wanted to get on, get moving. But when you see that's what it was, it was a slow start to a, and then we're on the express train. We're on the roof and, and we make an album. You know what I mean? So that's how we worked when we were in the studio. We were in the studio to do a specific thing. Let's make records, be in the studio, say hi. And uh, so I loved it all. And it, it was only a month because two days later I was in the same studio, the first studio with Peter Sellers doing The Magic Christian. Because there's one piece in it that makes me laugh, Paul says, because they want, we always went through, we have to go to India or we have to go to Rome to the Colosseum or we have to go Mount Everest and we walk across the road. And what came out of that discussion was, let's do it on the roof. And Paul, and I'm in the backyard, but Paul's saying, who wants to play live? And I go, I do. And then there's this like silence. And then John says, I do too. <laughs> well, he said, yes, we're doing it. And we did it on the roof. It was great playing live. It was great because we had a break for all the simple reasons. We wanted to get in the studio and see where we could take it. And we took it to some great places. And uh, playing live again was, I loved it. it, was a thrill, though it was raining on us. And everyone says, oh, that red coat you've got. Actually, it was Maureen's, my wife's. And it was, I didn't want to sit there just being rained on. So I borrowed a raincoat. And uh, it sounded great. We, you could see our mood was great. We're in it together again, live. I love that part. The only confusing part for me is when we're going through Paul's writing, uh, get back, I'm just like, get back to where you want me. Like, just straight rock. And then it's on the roof and I'm, I've got that shuffle swing march going. Uh, and I thought, oh, I wonder if there's any footage. Because I don't know what came into me to do that. But I just felt good at the time doing that. And, oh, yeah, keep that in. And if you, that was the big change. And that's how most of my drumming was, actually. It just It's a feeling kind of playing, not a absolute restrictive type of drumming. So anyway, I love the, the Get Back series. <laughs> yeah, I saw it when it was two hours. And then it was six hours. And everybody enjoyed it. There was a thought, wow, that's a long time. And uh, it didn't seem to hold anybody back. Here's a little bit of Ringo on that final Beatles song that's coming out later this year, which uses John Lennon vocals from a demo, the same way that Real Love and Free as a Bird did. It's coming out, and it's four boys on a track. That's all I'm telling you. My lips are sealed. 
So this was beautiful, and it's the final track you'll ever hear with the four lads, and that's a fact. And that was actual Beatle Ringo Starr. And now let's hear our live interview with Glenn Johns. I am super excited to have with me Rob Sheffield and Jason Hanley, the Vice President of Education for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And on the little television right here, we have a man who shaped my idea of what rock sounded like, of what classic rock really is. This man is the sound of classic rock in many ways. Glenn Johns is here with us. Glenn, we have a lot to ask you. So many of us have heard your work for so many years, but we really got to see you in the Get Back documentary. And one of the first things everyone noticed is what a fantastic dresser you were at that point in history. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your fashion sense back then and the, where you shopped and just peacocking it a little bit? Yes. I have to say it's incredibly embarrassing to see myself 54 years ago dressing like a clown. Anyway, the clothes were bought from a number of places. I don't remember a lot about it. I've managed to erase most of that period of my taste from my brain so i can't be very helpful but there was in those days there was a there were a lot of shops selling that stuff in london and i was working with the stones for years and so was influenced quite strongly by brian jones and mick jagger in particular bill wyman certainly not uh, it was quite easy to acquire pretty outrageous stuff so let's take you back to December of 1968, if we can. Your phone rings, and it's Paul McCartney on the line. What do you remember about that call? What I remember about it is that I didn't think it was Paul McCartney. I thought it was Mick Jagger taking the mickey and winding <laughs> me up. So I actually said, shut up. He said, I know this is Paul McCartney. I went, oh, yeah, sure. What do you want? And it, it turned out it was Paul, so that was a bit embarrassing. So he, he said that he had this idea to record a live show with all new music that would be an album and a television show and he asked me if I'd be interested in doing it with him and I, of course I said yes that was a great idea in fact as far as I'm aware and I could be wrong I think that's the only time anyone's ever thought about recording an entire live album of new songs obviously most people want the public to know the songs when they go to a gig and they're promoting an album invariably and usually the new material is the least of any interest to anybody it's always the stuff that they became famous for that the audience want to hear so there aren't many bands that could pull it off but of course the Beatles certainly could particularly with the material that materialized for this concert it was interesting to me reading your book which I recommend to everyone it was such a vivid picture of the time and of your work but reading your book you had done so much you were pals with the Stones it's not like you were new you were quite established in the world of rock and roll but still the idea of working with the Beatles was very exciting to you it felt like a new level it seemed like it was particularly exciting yes i've been very fortunate having worked with the stones for so long that attracted and the who before that that attracted quite a lot of major artists to acquire my services obviously the beatles were a bit of a few floors above in as much as what they'd done for the recording process in particular having done sergeant pepper and rewritten the book about record production they, they were on a whole nother level to most others. And so it was particularly pleasing to get the call, I have to say. Although it was going to be a live album, I wasn't going to be contributing anything other than just recording it initially. That changed, as we will, if we've seen the film, you see 
see what happens. What was your kind of professional assessment at that point of the sound of the records? Obviously, very, <laughs> needless to say, very innovative. Was there anything from your perspective that you felt was missing or that you wanted to try going in that you had never heard from them on a sort of sonic level? No, this is an entirely different process. We, they were literally going to be playing as a four-piece and playing live. So as far as I was concerned, I'm sure the reason they chose me was because I had a, a history of making live records. Really, all they wanted was someone to represent whatever they were doing on stage on a record. They weren't looking for clever tricks of any sort. And if they were coming to the wrong blue. So in January of 1969, I think January 3rd, you walk into Twickenham Studios and Michael Lindsay Hogg is there directing this for television and all the Beatles are there. And how did what you encountered there initially compare to your expectations? As you can imagine, I was quite nervous walking in. I knew Michael Lindsay Hogg really well. I've worked with him quite a lot previously. So we were pals. So that was it was nice to have a friend there. However, I was made to feel incredibly welcome by the crew, Mal Evans being the roadie. And, and, and as each of the lads arrived, they were all very welcome. And within no time at all, I felt quite comfortable. I didn't have anything to do for the first few days. I was just observing what they were preparing for the live show. So I was just standing around trying to take it all in and learn the material to a degree. I didn't have any input to what was going on at all. And then as the days progressed and it became more and more apparent that the, perhaps the concert wasn't going to work, it wasn't going to come off, then I got a bit more involved. We ended up going to Abbey, to, not to Abbey Road, to the Beatles' office where they built a studio in the basement. And then the whole thing changed dramatically from my input anyway. When you got there, one of the things you saw that perhaps you didn't expect was that John was sitting with someone we now know to be Yoko Ono, and that Yoko was answering questions for John and almost acting like she was a member of the band. And I think you wrote in your book that you found that a bit disconcerting. I'd never experienced quite like that before, having worked with quite a lot of people over the years. It was quite unsettling. And I thought the other three guys dealt with it brilliantly. And of course, it was none of my business. Whatever they wanted to allow to go on in their studio was up to them. It wasn't for me to have any input or for me to be affected by one way or the other, really. But I did find it really odd, extremely odd, in fact. Yeah. Never seen it before and never seen it since when I was doing the Stones Rock and Roll Circus. And there was a super group of John Lennon, I can't remember who else, Keith, I think. Clapton. Yeah. Eric Clapton, yes, I remember him, yes. And... Uh, the Mitch Mitchell, I think, the drummer from Jimi Hendrix. And uh, I was up in the loft of this building where the studio was, I, and I had a camera showing me the, the stage, I had a TV set, but I couldn't imagine what the hell was going on. It sounded like some sort of unbearable feedback going on, and it was Yoko with a bag overhead, screaming and hollering and making the most awful noises. And in fact, even now in, Let it, in the Let It Be film, she did a bit of that yes. when they were jamming in the Let It Be film. Mind-boggling. There we are, enough said. Obviously, we see in the film that George quit the Beatles. How real did that feel to you in the moment, especially as a newcomer? It was very real, yeah, extremely real. He even took his eight-track back. So I can talk about throwing your toys out the pram. I was really upset. I remember going outside when they were having their display. It looked like it was all going to go blow off. We all left the building so they could have a private conversation. And I remember sitting with Dennis O'Dell, the producer of the film. It was raining and we were sitting under this corrugated iron sheet. And I looked at him and I'm bloody hell, I've waited all these years to work with him. I've been in two minutes and it looks like it's all over already. And of course, 
that turned out not to be the case. But it was pretty disappointing. A lot was made of that whole issue. And the fact, you know what, if it hadn't been filmed and we weren't doing what we were doing in yeah. circumstances, it's entirely possible that no one would have ever known about it one way or the other. Huge issues have been made out of it. But the reality is any band that I've ever known, there's always a personality problem somewhere. It's like working in an office. You fall out with people that you work with in general. But creatively, it's going to be, that's going to be magnified quite substantially. And so it... There was nothing unusual about it, really. And the fact that they made it up as quickly as they did and sorted it out underlines that, really. Yeah, people forget that Ringo had quit during the previous album, which they had just made, giving themselves a month off between the White Album and, and the Let It Be sessions. But So then, as you said, you did decide to move to Savile Row, to the studio that was purportedly being built for them. And this brings us to one of our favorite characters in the Beatles saga, which is Magic Alex. I was on tour with the Stones in Europe, and he appeared out of the woodwork. Apparently, he'd met Marianne Faithful or something. I don't remember exactly how he got involved with the Stones, but I think it was Marianne that introduced him. And he convinced Mick, I presume, to allow him to visit the tour and explain what he, his idea was. And he came up with an idea. Basically, it was a bunch of lamps on the stage that lit up, that, that were plugged into the amps, and they lit up different colours depending on the low end or the top end or the middle of each amp. They lit up different colours, and the volume, they became brighter. It was just disco lighting only on a... It was just pathetic. Anyway, they gave him money, and he went and came back later two weeks later in the tour of these things and it was just a complete joke so how he managed to convince the Beatles that he was capable of building equipment for a recording studio I don't really know but he was obviously quite good at it convincing people that it's complete and utter fraud absolute fraud how he got away with it as long as he did I'll never know there's a great story I read about him when I was writing my books I thought I'd check him out a bit more and there's a great story about it. after the Beatles decided not to use him anymore he decided he was going to build armoured vehicles for politicians and apparently he built a limousine and they took delivery of it and they decided they'd test it and it blew <laughs> it's just a great story and it's typical of Alex really. you show up to this studio on Savile Row and it's ludicrous it has I don't know eight speakers nothing it wasn't even within the realm of usable right no it looked like something out of a 1930s space movie I don't know where to begin really but you, before I even turned it on you could see it was just you haven't got a clue the speakers were the size of a ham sandwich mm. and about the same thickness and there were eight of them on the wall. So you could start with that. He clearly hadn't got a clue what he was doing. So that was all very hastily removed. And we, George Martin very kindly arranged for equipment to come from EMI Studios, which is now Abbey Road Studios. And you, George Martin, you felt a little weird learning that George wasn't going to be involved in this project. And you wanted to make sure that he didn't feel that you were stepping on his toes or anything like that. And I think he took you out to lunch or something and assured you that he was totally fine with it, which seems very gentlemanly of him. He, George Martin was a complete gentleman without any question at all. And he did take me out to lunch and it was at his suggestion. And he did explain to me that I wasn't to feel uncomfortable in any shape, way or form. And he was quite happy with the situation, which made me feel a lot better because it was a bit odd, I have to say. He did come by on the odd day and keep a beady eye on what was going on. He didn't really contribute to the music production at all, but he oversaw it from the record company's point of view, I guess, probably. And I think it's brilliant that I started Abbey Road when we finished Let It Be, and I think it's brilliant 
that he took back control and he finished Abbey Road. And it's, I can assure you, it was a hundred times better album with his involvement than if it had been left to me. And somewhere in there, as they started to play at Savile Row, you had this idea of doing an album that was a warts and all audio documentary. And that's when you did a sort of rough mix and made five acetates. Now, any of us here who saw the exhibit here at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we saw your copy of that acetate, which is quite amazing to see. It must be quite a viable object, I have to say. And what happened was you made this and gave them all, gave each of the four members a copy. And you write in your book that they came back with all came back with a capital N-O. No way. What do you remember about that reaction? It was no more than I... I expected it was a pretty odd idea for them in particular to accept what I was suggesting. Well, of course, what they were not aware of and that I was, I was a new boy on the block. I was in there, was the fly on the wall, watching these four guys that were probably the most famous people on the planet and seeing what they were really like, rather than the only time you ever see them before is in some of the movies they made where they're playing characters or trying to be amusing, or alternatively, they're being interviewed by the media, where again, they're invariably trying to be amusing and fend off absurd questions. So I'm witnessing them actually working together, interacting with each other in a really genuine way. And I thought, that's what this record should be. If it's not going to be the concert, how bad would it be for everyone to see what they're really like and how they work together, etc.? Warts and all, as you said. So that was my idea. And again, because they'd already made such records, I understand exactly why they all said that. How did Billy Preston get involved with these sessions? He came by, he was in London doing something else, and he came by to say hello because he knew them well from Hamburg when they used to play in Hamburg before they became popular. Billy used to play on occasion there as well. And so they'd become friends when they were really young. So he called by just to say hello and pay his respects. So immediately he was sat down at the piano, and fortunately for everybody, he didn't leave. He came by every day from then on. He saved the day, really. He really made the whole thing. He glued it all together brilliantly. So the rooftop came about very naturally. You recalled Ringo talking about the building and talking about the roof. And what do you remember about that idea coming together? We were having lunch on the top floor of the building and Ringo and I were sat next to him and he said to me, have you ever seen the view from the roof here? And I said, no, why would I have ever been on the roof? So he took me up there and it became the obvious place to do the concert, really. We didn't have to go anywhere. It was a bit cold. It was January in London, not particularly clement weather, but it seemed to be a place of the whole alarm, and why not? I suggested it to, to Paul, and they all went for it. It's amazing that you got the sound that you got, considering the conditions, like you said, very inclement weather, wind. No, it's not really. Recording in the open air is quite handy, actually, because you're not having to deal with reflections of walls and glass and whatever else. And I've done an awful lot of live recording, and most of it have been out in arenas or whatever. So actually, it's really, it's like falling off a log. It's a doddle. Glenn, didn't you mention to me, too, when we spoke about it, that you were down in the basement or lower in the building, right? Like recording it all downstairs while they played yeah. on the roof, right? Yes. Yeah, we ran, I ran cables down the stairwell of the building. And the thing about the rooftop, right, is here at the museum, there's video of it everywhere in the beautifully restored Peter Jackson version. And it stands in legend as the final Beatles concert. And it's such a piece of rock and roll iconography and history at this point. Did it have the weight of history in the moment up there on the roof? Did it feel important to you? 
No, I was quite busy. I was quite busy. And we struggled to get to that point. I, to be honest, I didn't really believe they'd get up there and do it until they did. It was all a bit on tenderhooks. But I, no, I just, I was just glad that we were able to do something. And sorry that the thing got stopped as quickly as it did, because otherwise we, the whole thing would have, the whole album would have been live on the roof. That's a good point. And you, I think you didn't know one after 909 until they played it. That was a surprise to you? Exactly, yeah, I'd never heard it before. And so you must have been wondering, where did this fully formed song come from? By the time we got to that, nothing surprised me. I can assure you, I was ready for anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometime after the rooftop, I think George came to you and he had a song he wanted to demo. And that song was something. And he it sounds like he wasn't even sure that it was a great song and you had to encourage him a little bit. Yeah, extraordinary. He, he asked me to stay behind after everyone else had gone, which I happily did. And he played the song and I recorded it. He played guitar and sang it. And I sat in the control room, literally with my jaw on the floor, because it was such a beautiful song. And he came in the control room to, for me to play it back to him. And he said, what do you think? And I went, what do I think? It's a phenomenal song. What are you talking about? It's great. He wasn't. It seemed that he'd had the stuffing knocked out of him a little bit about his uh, his songwriting ability. And I suppose being around Lennon and McCartney for all that period of time that they were together, with them being constantly hailed as the greatest songwriters of the era, it might have been a bit limiting to him, or I don't know what the right word is, but it, it really didn't help him. And it's interesting that when the band broke up, he was the one who really had the massive solo success. Yeah. They all did, but George ripped it into it and had hit after hit. And you did end up, the mix that we hear on the Deluxe Edition box set that came out last year is not that first acetate. It's a subsequent mix that included the rooftop stuff and was meant to be was the first pass really at the album. What do you remember about doing that mix and the reactions and seeing it, of course, not come out for decades to come? It was pretty strange. After some weeks, and I don't recall precisely when it was, I got a call from Paul or John or maybe both of them together, I can't remember. They asked me to meet them at Abbey Road, which I duly did. And we went, in, went into the control room and there were a pile of eight-track tapes on the floor. And they said to me, do you remember the idea that you had for the album that you gave us an acetate each of? And I said, yes. And they said, we decided that we think it's probably a good idea to do. So we'd like you to do it. So I said, oh, great. Okay. When do we start? They said, we're not going to be there. We, you do it on your own. And it wasn't until I got back in the car with all these tapes that I realized that perhaps they'd lost interest in it a bit. They wouldn't have let me off on my own otherwise. That was a bit disappointing. But anyway, I went ahead and did it. And we were working on, but this time we just started working on Abbey Road. And I finished it. And I gave, again, I gave them all an estate of it. And they all seemed quite happy with it. That was the last I saw of it. Then it went, it ended up on a shelf in the basement of Abbey Road for 50 years. <laughs> it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Except I believe there were bootlegs over the years, though. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions 
and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. One of the things that when we see the documentary, I think the movie Let It Be, the original cut, which, uh, you know, one of the things it cut out was a lot of you. We didn't, we see so little of you in that movie compared to Get Back. But the other thing is the original movie famously was a, a fairly downcast portrait and it did seem like a band that was about to break up. But when we see Get Back and this much fuller picture, it's not at all clear that this had to be a band that was going to break up. It seems like there's a scenario where it could have gone on and on. But from your perspective being there, which was it? How did you see it at the time? No, it never entered my mind that they'd break up. Obviously, George leaving when he did was a, was an awkward moment. But I think if George had have stayed left, they'd have got another guitar player. I, on reflection, if you, I think the major problem here is, and they talk about it and let it be, otherwise I wouldn't have a clue about it. But Paul mentions Brian Epstein no longer being in charge. And there was no individual outside of the band who had any control over what the band was doing. So it had been left in recent years to the band themselves. 
And obviously this idea, the let it be idea, was Paul's idea. And the others went along with it, not really, it would seem, believing in it or wanting particularly to do it. But they turned up and they went along with it out of a spirit of camaraderie or trying to help Paul out with his idea. But I don't, no one was really know about the whole thing. And I think that was a major contributing factor because one person in the band wasn't able to take the band by the throat and control what went on, rather like Mick has done, has always done with the Rolling Stones, with Keith having a huge input as well. You and saw Alan the, Klein come in, Alan Klein being the, the manager yes. who, who arguably put the final rift in between the Beatles, and you urged the Beatles to check with Mick Jagger, get a character reference, and it, it didn't really happen, and you actually saw on... You heard through the studio microphones, you saw Alan Klein's kind of berating Paul McCartney to come aboard the idea of him as manager. And you said it was a very intense and unpleasant discussion to witness. All of that is true. I, I had a, I had dealings with Alan Klein because I'd worked with the Rolling Stones for so long and he represented them for a considerable period of time. And I, I must be honest, it, it wasn't really my cup of tea. But and it was, I had no first-hand, he'd never been unpleasant to me, he'd never had any reason to be. Or he'd always dealt with me perfectly fine. But I knew that there'd been problems with Mick and Keith and him, and so I suggested to the four Beatles that they might like to talk to Mick and Keith before they made any decision about going with Alan, because Mick and Keith would have a far greater insight, certainly, than I. And I guess they didn't. I don't know if any of them ever did or not. So much later, the released version of Let It Be emerges, and... I'll quote you, which is, you called it, you said, John gave the tapes to Phil Spector, who puked all over them, turning yeah. the album into the most syrupy load of bullshit I have ever heard. That's quite a review. But, from your, <laughs> but talk about that, because from your perspective, here you were making this stripped down thing. You had already made this very cool, that we can all hear, this very cool stripped down, you are there, exciting mix, and here comes someone to do the exact opposite to it. And that's what the world hears. Not only did he do the exact opposite, he did a terrible job. Don't misunderstand me. I respect Phil Spector for his early work. Tremendously, he was incredibly clever. But somebody like Phil Spector should never be allowed near a band like the Beatles, in my view. Phil Spector was always the artist in the records that he made. He treated the artists like parts of the machine to make the end result. And more power to him, he was very successful at it. But I don't think the Beatles ever require that kind of input. There we are. It's just my opinion. Why do you think the Beatles fell for it with Phil Spector? Did they not know what they were getting into? I think they admired him enormously like everyone else. And I guess the idea of having him at all was, was I don't know, interesting. I don't know. George worked with him too, didn't he, if I remember rightly, didn't he? Did George Harrison? Yes, on All Things Must Pass. So they, he obviously cast some sort of spell. One of the things I always think about that record is, Ryan, you were alluding to it, that we've all lived with these different versions of Let It Be over the years, whether it was the film and seeing the process, the way Michael Lindsay Hogg represented it, the album that Phil put out, the sort of rumors of the bootlegs of the Glyn John mix that were around, even for those of us who hadn't heard it. And then getting that box set recently was really eye-opening too, just to hear all the different material, all the different mixes. I think, Glenn, do you think of this, like how do you think about this record when you hear it? Do you think of your version? Do you think of Phil's? Like this album seems like it's been so many different things to so many different people. Where does it sit for you? Which version do you have in your head? I certainly don't ever think of 
Phil Spector's <laughs> version, as you can imagine. I only ever listened to the first few bars of the first track, and I, that was it. I've never listened. Wow. Of, n- not of any interest to me. As far as I'm concerned, it was a few weeks of really interesting experience for me that was 54 years ago. Yes. It was surrounded by an extremely busy seven-day-a-week working schedule with loads of different people. And this was obviously pretty important because it was them. But when it fell by the wayside, my version fell by the wayside, I got over it really quickly. I was disappointed, of course. But I understood all the other contributory factors to it not coming out or whatever. And I just moved on. I was busy. And when it really suddenly ahead again, all quite recently, I thought that, that should be music. And the fact that Peter was involved with editing the film and I loved the idea of meeting Peter, which I did, and enjoyed his company enormously. But other than that, I've, it's just a it's a football blip in my career, which now I guess I'm pretty proud of. But I got over it, and I still am over it. I, that's it, really. Glenn, one of the things that's frustrating listening to the box set and all the stuff that you recorded, they did a bunch of songs or snippets of songs that would later be on soul albums. The one that's most tantalizing to me, I think, is they started doing the George song, All Things Must Pass. And they were doing this incredible version of it with group vocals. And as George suggested, make it sound like the band. And they did. It's very much in that style. And it's at least as good as anything on the album if they had finished it. Do you recall that and hearing that as a promising thing that they just didn't pursue all the way? To be really honest with you, I do not. (laughs) no, I don't. I was. I did see it in Peter's film, but I agree with you. It was a missed opportunity. But equally, there was. There's absolutely no point in me having a strong opinion about any of the material that was presented by anybody because the four of them were going to decide what was going to be done, and they certainly didn't want anyone else's input on that level. As a young engineer, you said that your impression of the Beatles' early stuff was that it wasn't that extraordinary until the voices were put on, that the playing was fairly comparable to other groups. Did you feel by the time you were on these Let It Be Get Back sessions that had changed, that there was something genuinely extraordinary just about the way they were playing? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. You're absolutely right. I had the good fortune to be present on a recording for a TV show they did in the very early 60s called Around the Beatles. And it was done at the studio where I was working. And the backing tracks, we they pre-recorded the backing tracks and they sang live on the show, on the TV show. And the backing tracks sounded pretty average, like any band, really. I actually think they all developed tremendously as musicians from then. George in particular, if George is not, was not the most instinctive guitar player like Eric. If Eric hears a tune, he can sit down and rip something off immediately. He has an emotive reaction to to the piece of music and it just flies out of him. George needs time to sit and work stuff out. And when he does, it is phenomenal. It's just phenomenal. Again, Ringo, I didn't pay much attention to initially, but by the time I got to record them, it became apparent to me what an astonishing drummer he is. And I don't think he gets nearly enough credit to this day. He really is quite remarkable. His feel, I'm talking about his feel, his technical ability is average, but his feel, exceptional. Also, what he does, where he puts what he plays, is quite remarkable. 
And without him, they would not have been the same band. I don't care what anybody says. How would you compare him to, to Charlie Watts, who you also work with so extensively? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't compare him at all. Charlie's completely different sort of drummer. He, Charlie's really a jazz drummer, if the truth were known, or was really a jazz drummer. The most reliable drummer I've ever sat in a room with, without any question. Keith would sit and play the same piece of music for hours and hours and on end, and Charlie would play along with him. And I promise you, there was never a beat dropped, or he knew exactly what he was doing at every moment. And when it was required of him, he could drive that band through a brick wall. Just extraordinary. Without playing loud or hammering or showing off or any of that, he just played great. And also could play a slower blues than any other human being on the planet, without any question. It's remarkable. Your a reproduction of your date book is here in the museum, and we were talking about it. It's, it's Monday Beatles, Tuesday Dentist from 1969, <laughs> and then basically Wednesday Stones. And it is remarkable to think in that same year, 1969, you, again, you sat with the Stones and made Let It Bleed, absolutely epochal, tremendous classic album and the first Zeppelin album. 1969, quite a year for you. What sticks out in your memory about the Let It Bleed sessions? What are your, what were the key moments for you? I don't remember very much about Let It Bleed. I've made, I don't know how many albums with the Stones, but a lot. Ten, I don't know. I don't even know. A lot. So it's all a bit of a blur. I don't remember much about any of them, really. Because most huge amounts of time were really boring. And then all of a sudden there'd be something amazing happening and that made all the boring bits worthwhile. Yeah, you said that you related to the Charlie Watts statement that it was whatever it was, 10 years of making records and 30 years of waiting around. Yeah. Because the Stones were very inefficient in their process is the idea. It wasn't inefficient from their perspective. It's how it worked. And it worked really well. So it's not for me to criticize. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that to be part of it and not, I'll just be the engineer, which is all I ever was. You had to have the patience of Joe. It, I couldn't, and it wouldn't have done any good if I did in, try and interact and try and move things along a bit or whatever else. If you're working with somebody like Keith, he does what he wants when he wants. And if it means you sit there and wait for him to turn up for eight hours, <laughs> which I'd never have done if it had been down to me, I've sat all night working with the rest of the band doing overdubs or whatever else, got to five o'clock in the morning and we're all leaving and we're going out the building and Keith shows up and they all go back in again. <laughs> so yeah, Keith was starting his work day at five in the morning and it's not like he had just woken up early. No, exactly. <laughs> well, probably he hadn't been to sleep three or four days. I don't really know. Nor do I care. <laughs> and yeah, Led Zeppelin, tell us about how that came about, what it was like capturing some of those sounds because it, it, that was a whole... Same year, but entirely different universe opening its doors at that point. I'd known Jimmy Page since we were kids. We, were, we came from the same town, and I'd come across him as an early teenager. I didn't know him terribly well, but I'd met him. And I got a job as a recording engineer in a studio in London, and I was able, when I got my foot in the door there, I was able to recommend Jimmy to do sessions for various people, which I did. Uh, Shel Talmy was a, an American record producer that I was the engineer for. He had The Who and The Kinks, for example, and other people as well. But that's who he had the most success with at the beginning. And I got Jimmy in on some of those sessions. So Jimmy and I had a bit of history. John Paul Jones was the session bass player in London 
by miles. So I, I used to see him every day, two or three sessions a day, working for other people. So I knew him really well. Jimmy Page rings me up in 1968 and says, I'm put, I put a band together with John. I'm going to make an album. And I think Jimmy was in the Yardbirds at the time. In fact, the sessions were booked in the name of the Yardbirds, which was pretty ridiculous. Anyway, so he asked me if I'd do it, and I said, yes, I would. And I turn up, and I didn't know Robert Plant or John Bonham from anything. I'd never heard of them before. And they set up and started to play, and I was literally pinned to the back wall by what I heard. I, it was nothing like what I expected. I knew Jimmy and John were really good musicians, but I had no idea they were going to play the type of rock and roll that they invented, which they did in a way. And equally, John Bonham was like no drummer I'd ever heard, had a sound like no drummer I'd ever heard, and a technique far better than most drummers I'd ever worked with. And, and Robert Plant was a great singer, a very unusual singer. That What they produced as a foursome was pretty astounding. And I, again, I sat for nine days, which is how long that first album took, having my hair parted. It was quite extraordinary. I've often thought that if I hadn't have heard, if I hadn't have done those sessions and I'd have heard the album that had been done by someone else, whether I'd have appreciated it quite as much as I did at the time, I don't really know. But I remember taking the record and playing it to George Harrison on the way home from a Beatles session and he didn't like it at all. <laughs> and I remember playing it to Mick Jagger because I thought they should go on the Rock and Roll Circus and Mick didn't like it at all either. So a lot of my contemporaries that I've been working with didn't get it at all. And I thought we were all at the same age, but I guess not. One album that we had to ask you about, jumping ahead a couple years, is another one of the greatest albums of all time, Who's Next? And it started... First, Pete had to try to explain this. Uh, Pete Townsend of The Who had this idea that is hard to explain to this day. It was supposed to be called something called Lifehouse, and it involved all sorts of things. And I imagine he sat you down and tried to explain this concept that, that was Who's Next before it became Who's Next. Lifehouse was a movie. With it. it had a script. Pete sent me the script. He called me and told me about the film and sent me the script. And he also sent me an acetate of the demos of the songs that were for the film. Pete Townsend is another exceptional individual that I've had the good fortune to work with in as much as he, I think the guy's a genius and I don't bandy that word about very much. He's an incredibly talented engineer and the demos that he makes are quite remarkable and extremely, can I say, complete. However, of course, because he's not Keith Moon, nor is he giant whistle. It doesn't, they don't sound like the Who. They sound like Pete Townsend. And the difficulty with all of the material that he's ever written and done demos for is for the band to then take that material also, because his voice doesn't sound like Rosa Daughters, is to take that material and do it justice and make it the Who, which they did remarkably well. Anyway, the idea was we all got together, the band and me and Bill Kirby, their manager, to discuss how we were going to proceed. And I was the first person to mention that I had read the script and didn't really understand it. And I put that down to my own inefficiencies. And unfortunately, everyone else in the room put their hand up and said, I didn't either. So <laughs> the whole idea of the film got ditched 
almost immediately, and that, which I thought was really sad. It certainly wasn't what I was intending when I made the remark. So I said, look, the music that you've written for this, it's quite remarkable. I think it, it warrants, why don't we just go and make an album of that, which is what we did. That's the story, really. And I've always felt terrible. And Pete, I don't know if Pete's ever really forgiven me. <laughs> he seems to mostly blame John, John Atwistle and Keith Moon for not understanding it and the rest of the world. He, I've never heard him blame you. Right. What was that process like of getting it from those Pete Townsend sounding demos to the album that became The Who? John Atwistle is like no bass player I've ever worked with. He doesn't, he's not, it isn't like he's part of a rhythm section. Even. He's like a solo instrument, really. So obviously anything he does it's going to be entirely different from anything Pete plays. Keith Moon, again, it's like a bull in the china shop as a drummer, and the idea of Keith playing straight time, just <laughs> I don't think he'd be capable of doing it, to be honest with you. Sure. So immediately you've got a bit of a problem. However, they instinctively take what Pete writes and they bring their own thing to it. And it, immediately it's the who. Yeah. And the same with Roger, the way Roger performs the vocals. And it's fascinating. From a sonic point of view, it did get a bit tricky. And apparently, and I'm not sure if, how accurate I am about this, but I was, I do know this, that after, when Who's Next had been released and we came to do the next album, John Entwistle didn't want me to produce it because he felt that I'd interfered with the way he played too much on Who's Next because oh. I tried to make him conform a little bit, being what a bass player would normally do. <laughs> yeah, but, and evidently, he, although he never said anything about it at the time. He never complained at the time, but he wasn't very happy. One of the things that you're legendary for is your drum sounds. So many of the most famous drum sounds in rock are ones that you recorded. How do the different drummers that you've worked with, how do they compare for you? And how do they present different challenges? Listen, mate, the whole secret of my drum recording technique is about as simple as falling off a bloody log. I've been really lucky to work with great musicians. And part of the, my job was to try and capture the sound that they are giving me, not to try and create something that they're not capable of doing themselves. But yes, of course, there'd be odd occasions where someone's snare drum isn't quite right, so you're going to change it, or maybe the cymbals aren't quite right, or perhaps the tuning of a tom-tom is slightly out of pitch with what's going on, all that sort of stuff. That's normal stuff with any drummer. But in the main... The drummers I've been lucky to work with all give me a fantastic sound. And all I've got to do is capture it. And with three microphones at a reasonable distance from the drums, it's page one. It's really simple. We did want to ask about a very interesting thing that didn't actually happen but could have happened. When you met Bob Dylan for the first time, he told you about an idea he had a very ambitious album. He wanted to make an album with the Beatles and the Stones, and you actually did your best to make this happen. You put in some effort. What happened there? Quite obviously, it came to nothing <laughs> fairly swiftly. <laughs> Keith Richards, big fan of Bob Dylan. George Harrison, big fan of Bob Dylan. They both loved the idea, thought it would be really interesting. Mick absolutely poo-pooed the idea, thought it was thought Bob Dylan was a lunatic. Or the last time I saw Bob Dylan, he was eating a banana in the back of a limousine or something. I can't remember, whatever it was, but he didn't go for it. Paul and John just dismissed it completely as a no-flyer. And in fact, it would have been a disaster area with all that lot. You'd have had to, you'd have had to 
have certain people leave the room <laughs> every now and then and put the right rhythm section together for each song. I don't know. Obviously, that came to pass with the Travelling Wilburys. Great uh, And that worked brilliantly, but that was only with one member from the Beatles. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.